Our Father, we read the scriptures and we read what Jesus said about Matthew 24, about the last days, and we cannot help but surmise that you are up to something. We are seeing all kinds of uh, events, and these events are not random. Jesus told us to keep our eyes peeled for certain events, certain developments. Uh, and as we do that and read what's going around us through the lens of Scripture and what Jesus said, uh, many, uh, many people are fearful and many are deeply troubled and so many are uh, afflicted. So many have lost homes. So many are uh, threatened. So many have seen calamities hit. And these are great tragedies. But not if they prompt us to call upon you, the living God and turn from those things which we tend to trust in and trust in you and your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you own history and that you own the present and that you own the future and that you told us to not let our hearts be troubled. Uh, there are a lot of reasons to fear. There are a lot of reasons to be depressed. There are a lot of reasons to be anxious. But you, you, the living God, are the solution to all of those anxieties and fears. You, you invite us to cast all of our fear upon you, to cast all of our anxiety upon you, because you care for us and you have a plan for us in Christ. And you have a special affection for your people. You loved us before we loved you. You came after us. We did not come after you. What a great God you are. What a great Savior. What a good, great Deliverer. What a great Sustainer. So wherever we find ourselves in life today, these men who are gathered here, whatever circumstances we are in, whatever we are facing, um, our hope is in you, and we are optimistic, and we're not afraid because we know you, the living God. My times are in your hand. The Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. He will send from heaven and save me. The eye of the Lord is on those who hope for his loving kindness. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro about the earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully his, that he may strongly support them. We need you. We desperately need you. And it varies from man to man, the circumstances that each individual is but the bottom line is, we need you.
how thankful we are that you are a savior and a deliverer and a sustainer. That gives us great hope. Encourage us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, So I have a premise for us as we start tonight, and the premise is this. We have been talking about anchoring our families in Christ, and we have pointed out that biblically, the way that you stop a drifting family is to get a man anchored on Jesus Christ. So that's been the theme anchoring your family. But here's the premise. If you are going to anchor your family in Christ, then you yourself must be anchored in the love of God. Now, I can't tell you how, how important this premise is. I want to say it again. If you are going to anchor your family in Christ, you yourself, as a husband, as a grandfather, as a man, you yourself, if you're going to anchor a family, you yourself must be anchored in the love of God. There are different aspects to God's character, but the love of God is absolutely critical. And tonight, what I want to do is I want to uh, speed model with all of you, I want to speed model with you um, the importance of understanding the love of God in our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. Now, the term, I, I use the term speed model. First time I ever heard that was from a man named Bob Beale, who was a Christian consultant and business advisor. He was on the board for years at Focus on the Family was instrumental as a consultant in the beginning of, of this church. It's what he does. A very unique guy, Bob Beal. Um, I remember talking with Bob, and he, he had a... He, he just talked about speed modeling. Sometimes you can learn a lot by just going somewhere where they're doing something uh, that you're interested in in a particular fashion that's very, very effective and, uh, and productive. Just go for a day, two days, watch it, see what they're doing, take some notes, you speed model it. Uh, Bear Bryant was a great football coach. If, if you're a football coach and you're going to become a legend, you've got to be able to adapt to changes. Because in college football, especially, it seems like offenses are always changing. Uh, there used to be an offense called the single wing. I mean, I've gotten one of those at Kentucky Fried before. But it was an offense. It goes way, way back. Uh, first football helmet I ever got was a leather flex helmet. And man, it was neat. I mean, it was great. And you could also use it as a catcher's mitt when, when you played baseball. But it just was on there, and what was that? I mean, I got that when I was like four, 19... 
<laughs> in the early 50s somewhere. No. Um, but you, stop, you, start, you think about offenses, and they, they go through trends. Uh, you, you, got, uh, you, had the, you had the single wing. You had the, uh, you had the T formation. You know, they run the option or a pro set. Or you remember when the wishbone was the big thing? True story, um, Bear Bryant got beat by a couple of teams that were running this thing called the wishbone. In the offseason, he called his friend Daryl Royal. He said, Daryl, I'd like to come over for a couple of days and bring my offensive coaches. Come on over. I want to see what you guys are doing with the wishbone. They spent a couple of days, and Royal showed him everything they were doing. The, you know, looked at film, this, this, the concept in. He goes back and he adapts. And he starts running the wishbone. Uh, didn't take him six months, didn't take him a year, took him two or three days. You just speed model. It's just a real quick, intense look at something that has your full and undivided attention. Now, that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to speed model, if you will, uh, the concept of the love of God, how much he loves us, those of us that are following him, that have called on the name of the Lord Jesus to be saved from our sins, there is a special covenant love that he has for his people. And we're going to speed model it tonight with the help of, the, of our coach, the Apostle Paul. We're going to pretty much spend our time in, um, in one chapter of the book of Romans, which is Romans 8. A case could be made, a case could be made that the greatest chapter in all the entire Bible is Romans 8 because it pretty much sums up the entire message in, um, in condensed form of the entire Bible from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation. All in Romans 8. It is a, um, it's a masterpiece. And the Spirit of God breathed out this truth in Romans 8 through the pen of the Apostle Paul. So we're going to speed model the love of God because here's what the love of God does. We're, we're men, we're husbands, we're fathers, we're grandfathers. Um, God has called us to lead in our homes. God has called us to lead in the church. Uh, you may not view yourself as a leader, but you're a leader because you're a man there's someone you're influencing. There's someone who is watching you. You may not even be aware of the fact that they are watching you. The more you yourself are anchored in God's love for you, the more effective you're going to be under pressure as the world continues to fray and fall apart. You are going to be calm. You're going to be stable. You're going to be steady. You're going to be optimistic. Why? Because of the love of God. The, 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 the emphasis is not on you. The emphasis is on him. So tonight, and I want to move tonight quickly. I've taken several different medications I've never tried before. <laughs> and we'll see how this works. In an attempt to get a lot done in a short amount of time. 
I want to give you tonight five anchors. Five anchors on the love of God. And let me go ahead and just give the five main points, and then we'll go down back and we'll break them down. Um, here's the first anchor. He loves me by what he has accomplished. And we'll explain this out of Romans 8. He loves me by what he has accomplished. Here's the second one. He loves me by helping me to assassinate sin. Let me say that again. He loves me by helping me to assassinate sin. Okay? Here's the third one. He loves me by my adoption. By my adoption. That's also in Romans 8. Here's a fourth one. He loves me by his active assistance. Active assistance every day of my life. So that's your fourth anchor. The, the fifth anchor that, that I see is <clears throat> he loves me by his insurance of assurance. He loves me by his insurance of assurance that indeed he loves me. So one more time, through him fast. He loves me by what he has accomplished. Secondly, he loves me by helping me to assassinate sin. Thirdly, he loves me by my adoption. Fourth, he loves me by his active assistance. Fifth, he loves me by his insurance of assurance. Let's dive into the first one. He loves me by what he has accomplished. Romans 8, verse 1. says this. Therefore, and we'll stop there. <laughs> Whenever you see a therefore, here's a principle of Bible study. Whenever you see a therefore, stop and see what it's there for. Is a therefore not a summary statement? Absolutely it is. When someone says, therefore, they're summing up what they just said. But let's at least read the first verse. Okay? And then we'll go back and look at what he was summing up. Uh, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is a great verse. That is a wonderful verse. That is a verse that sets us free. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, he doesn't say there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, therefore. So we got to back up into Romans 7 and see what it was he was talking about in Romans 7 that he's now summing up in Romans 8, verse 1, that therefore is very significant. Um, because in Romans 7, beginning with verse 24, he is talking about the conflict that we as Christians have. There's an internal daily conflict that we have because we have two natures. It used to be we just had one nature. 
which was a sin nature. We're, we're born with a sin nature. Um, we are born in uh, Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So we are, little babies are cute. They come out of the womb, everybody's excited. Um, but they are little self-centered, they're, they're little sinners. They, they are their own gods. They recognize no authority except their own. Uh, they're just sinners. And we, this is passed on from generation to generation. But here's what happens. When we come to know Christ, when we hear the gospel and the Spirit of God pulls us and we are regenerated by the Spirit of God, th there is a change. In fact, in 2.1 of Ephesians, for by grace you, uh, that's, uh, uh, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin. That's Ephesians 2.1. But, but then it goes on and talks about what the Spirit of God has done. He pulls us to himself, uh, 2.8, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. The faith wasn't even of you. God gave you the faith. Faith is a gift of God. And you couldn't exercise faith on your own because, you, because you're dead. Dead men, dead men, <laughs> dead men can't change their condition. They can't do it. It's impossible. We're spiritually dead. Most evangelicals don't believe that they really don't believe people are spiritually dead. We think they're spiritually unconscious. We tend to think that someone can come to Christ anytime they want to. That's not true. No man can come unless the Father draws him because you're dead in your trespasses and sins. So the fact that you're drawn is the grace of God. Is the grace of God. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand. So what happens when Christ comes into our life now, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, old things have passed away. Now, we're not in the kingdom of darkness, we've been transferred in the kingdom of God. Now, Satan is not our father, God the Father is our father. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Okay. So now we're new creatures, but we still have two natures. We still have a sin nature. But we have the Holy Spirit living within us, and there is this principle of spiritual life. We've been born again and now the process is beginning of us going from immaturity to maturity and becoming mature men in Christ. And it's, it's a process of, of long growth and slow growth. Okay. Before we come to know Christ, it's as though our um, sin, our sin nature, is a giant. It's this giant that rules and reigns in our lives and intimidates us and torments us and we have to do what the giant says and it's our master and it's, it's just a horrible existence. But when Christ comes into our life because of what he has done, that big giant is still in our lives but now he's an emaciated old man with emphysema in a wheelchair that's got one of those things in his nose. And the thing you don't want to do, you don't want to feed him, 
and you don't want to give him any water. You want to starve him. We'll get into more of that later. He's, so you still got a sin nature. But the Spirit of God lives within you. This causes uh, conflict. Having those two natures. There is... Um, Yeah, because, uh, you know, I, I travel and I do conferences and I talk with a lot of guys around the country over the years. I have had a lot of conversations with a lot of men who really deeply struggle. They're Christians and they, they deeply struggle with the concept that God loves them. I mean, they know what the Bible says. They know John three sixteen, But see, really in their heart of hearts, you know what they think? They think God likes them. But they really aren't buying into that he loves me. It's not that they don't believe the scripture. It's because of their own dismal performance on a daily basis. They feel like they don't measure up. They, they feel like the sin nature is winning more than the new nature. And they feel like God is not pleased. They feel like uh, God's disappointed. They, and recently... Um, a friend sent me an email and I asked him if, if I could just, he, he put it so well and summed up what, I can't tell you how many conversations over the years I've had. He just summed it up real well. And he said, sure, go ahead. And, and here's what the email said. Uh, my issue is this. Whenever I pray or think about God, I picture a cold, disappointed boss who is going to deny my request and, and put me in more discipline for my own good, Hebrews 12. And he's going to do it over and over. Uh, I feel perpetually stuck in God's gymnasium, as Martin Lloyd-Jones would call it. I literally see a man shaking his head every time I ask him for anything, speaking of God, and if I get what I want, like this new job that recently came my way, I have a sense of impending doom. That God is going to make me fail or something bad is going to happen to crush me again. Now, I've heard this a lot over the years. I dealt with this a lot in my early years. Uh, partly because of what I was taught, which was not real strong on the love of God in our church. Believe the Bible, but they were really pretty strong on works. They believe the gospel, but when you got right down to it, you really needed to perform. That's really what it came down to. So I relate to this. He goes on and says, when I read a verse promising something good from God, it usually comes with strings attached, and I envision God saying, I didn't make the cut. That's honest. And if the truth were to be known, there were a lot of guys in this room and you see it. And honestly, that's how you feel. Um, he went on and said, uh, I, I pray and confess this negative mindset, but it's borderline chronic. It makes me not want to be near God. Now, this guy has known the Lord for years. Raised in a Christian home, Christian family, Bible teaching church. 
It makes me not want to be near God. It's obviously tied up with my own dad somehow, who, who loves me and wants the best for me, but is constantly bringing up stuff I need to change or do better. It's never enough. I, I shot him back just a, a brief reply. Uh, every human father is deeply flawed, except me, and of course you. We're all deeply flawed. We're all screwed up. Every human father is deeply flawed, even the best of human fathers. And they provide, our fathers, they provide the lens which would which, with which we look at God the Father. But our lenses are deeply distorted. That's why Jesus came to show us the Father. You see? Uh, it's the fact of the matter. Um, our, our sense of God and what he is like comes from human fathers. Fascinating book. I've quoted it before. I'm not going to take the time really to quote it. But uh, Paul Vitz, V-I-T-Z, he's written a book called Faith of the Fatherless. He takes uh, 13 very well-known atheists and uh, traces their relationships with their fathers. Um, he's got an entire chapter called Atheists and Their Fathers. He's got Nietzsche, David Hume, Bertrand Russell, a bunch of other guys. Interesting how... Uh, Almost to a man, their fathers were uh, extremely demanding. Extremely demanding. Sometimes abusive. Um, it affected them. It affected how they viewed God. He's got another section called Theist and their fathers. God believers. Men who stood for God and for his truth. Many of them Christians, some Jewish men. Um, Blaise Pascal, Edmund Burke, William Wilberforce, G.K. Chesterton, Bonhoeffer. Uh, and he talks about their fathers. And it's just kind of fascinating how each of these men were shaped. And those men tend to have fathers who um, were not weak men, were not, um, did they have expectations for their sons? Did they have demands? Yes, in a good way. But you see, the demands, the ex expectations uh, that a son matures, that he learns self-control, that he learns self-discipline, that he starts good habits in his life. In, in other words, we're living under the scripture here and as a father, the father was attempting to implement that in his own life and was attempting to raise his children with those ideals and expectations, but it was done with, watch this, it was done with grace and mercy. When you got a demanding father who doesn't incorporate grace and mercy, you got a train wreck. So the guy who wrote this email, he's struggling. Uh, and not the only guy to struggle. Demanding fathers 
who are always nitpicking, even Christian fathers who nitpick, and it's never quite good enough. It's never quite up to par. It's never... That's tough. That's tough. And when that's how you're raised, it can seriously distort your view of God. I find it interesting at the baptism of Jesus that a voice came out of heaven and it said... This is my beloved son in whom I am deeply disappointed. <laughs> no, it was, this is my beloved son in whom I am what? Well, please, you see, that's called affirmation. Jesus came to show us the Father. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We get, uh, I think we all start off with a distorted view of who God is. But when we come to know Christ and we begin to mature and we begin to get to know the scriptures and we, and we start to get to know God, what is it, John 17, 3, Jesus said, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou has sent. The more I'm in the scriptures, the more I'm in the word, the more I get to know him and the distortions go away about who he is and how he deals with me and how he loves me and accepts me. You understand my statement, my premise back when we started was, if you're going to anchor your family in Christ, you yourself must be anchored in the love of God. Because if you as the leader of the home are distorted about who God is and how he deals with us, that's going to be reflected in how you then deal with your children. I think the more we understand his love and his mercy and his goodness and his kindness and forgiveness, that which we receive from him, we in turn pass on. That just makes sense. Romans 7 describes the conflict, all right? So let's look at Romans 7. Look at verse 14. Now, why are we in Romans 7, verse 14? Because we started in Romans 8, 1, with therefore. So we're going to 7, 14 to see what it is that he is summarizing in 8, 1 and in everything to follow in 8. Let's read it and let's see if this doesn't ring a bell with every guy in this room, who is a believer in Christ. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold into bondage to sin. Got to make a comment here about flesh. So flesh can mean flesh. It's on, on, the, on the skin, the bones, okay? But flesh, whenever the word flesh is used in conjunction with the word spirit or spiritual, it's talking about sin nature, Okay? that old emaciated man that's in there that you don't want to feed. Okay, so we got a war going on between us. Now, 15 gets right into it. Paul says, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. Huh. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. There's nothing wrong with the law. So no, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. 
He's not saying he's not responsible for sin, but he's saying there is this force, there is this nature within me that is real. And this is why I'm in great conflict. 18, for I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is in my flesh, in my sin nature. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I don't do, but I practice the very evil that I don't want. Now, I know this doesn't, I know you can't relate to this, but the guy next to you can. <laughs> we all relate to this. 20. But if I'm doing the very thing I don't want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Yeah, sin still dwells within me. 21. I find the principle then that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully can occur with the law in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Uh, Job said, is it Job? I'm doing this off the top of my head. I'm not sure this is right. It might be Job 31.1. We'll see. I have made a covenant with my eyes that I will not gaze upon a virgin in lust. But isn't it interesting? You can make a covenant like that and you're trying to be a one-woman kind of man, but you keep seeing these women. And there's a lot of them to see because they reveal so much of themselves. I'm not talking metaphysically, I'm talking physically. And they're everywhere. And it's hard to be a one-woman kind of man because you see them and you want to look away, but you look away and then here comes another one. And they're everywhere. And sometimes you see it's a process. The Christian life is a life of slow growth. Uh, I had a conversation with a good friend in the last week. 80, and he said, Steve, at some point, you ought to talk about sexual temptation and how it doesn't go away, even in your 70s and 80s. You see, because it's in us. Okay. 22, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. What, look at his frustration. And this reminds me of the guy who sent the email. Look at this. Wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from this, the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is that great news or what? I, I, first of all, I'm so thankful that's in Scripture and that it was written by the Apostle Paul under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul struggled. I struggle. You struggle. 
And see, we, and the enemy come, then the enemy comes along and he says, yeah, you're worthless. I mean, you're a failure. Are you, you're probably, are you even a believer? You're still struggling with that? What is wrong with you? How could you call yourself a Christian? And he just, he's the accuser of the brethren. And the thing is, we know he's right because, you see, we all, we pretty much know our spiritual batting average. Do we not? I think we do. Um, this is why this guy who wrote the email, he was so honest and why he thinks that he doesn't make the cut and all this. Why? He's looking at, he's looking at a spiritual batting average. What I want to do, I don't do. And you think by now, I wouldn't be struggling with this, but I'm still struggling with it. Oh, you're going to struggle with it till you die. Uh, Ted Williams in 1941 hit 406. Maybe the greatest hitter of all time. Unbelievable. He hit 406. You know what that means? It means he failed six out of ten times. It's just all how you look at it, right? I mean, if you pay, play 15, 18 years and you hit over 300 and you're pretty good on defense, you're probably going to the Hall of Fame. But you see, there's a guy who failed seven out of 10 times consistently for 15 years. And we, they get a bronze bust in the whole thing and, you know, they get a gold card or something, whatever they get. I mean, in this day and age, I was reading this week, there are more homers hit this year in Major League Baseball than any year since um, everybody was juiced and walking around with pumpkin heads. You know, and uh, what, was that 2000? You had Bonds and McGuire and Sosa and, I mean, they're just, it's interesting, you know, all these guys hitting home runs and they're signing contracts. Uh, oh, they're hitting home runs, but you see, they got batting averages under 200. 184, 191. And they're still making 40, 50 million a year. You see, they're failing. They're paying them 45, 50, 60, 80 million a year, and they fail eight and a half times out of 10. I just, I, that gives a little perspective to me. You've got a spiritual battering average, and so do I. Uh, I think here's what happens. We come to know Christ, and maybe when we're new believers, maybe, uh, you, you know, you expect, you're, hey, you're new. You're, you're an infant. This is all brand new stuff, and you don't know what you're doing. So maybe you're hitting 146. But then, you know, you're going to Bible studies and all this, and then you look around, and five years later, you're hitting, you know, 184. And then 10 years later, you're hitting 229. And maybe 20 years later, you're hitting a solid 265. And see, you're thinking, I don't make the cut. What's wrong with me? That's, that's, you're in spiritual warfare, man. Your adversary, the devil, 1 Peter 5, goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But we all deal with this. So you see, here's the deal. You got to get out of Romans 7, and you got to accelerate into Romans 8. Because see, when you're always in Romans 7, 
you're thinking that God doesn't love you because you've got this subprime batting average. And he must not be pleased with you. So we hustle to Romans 8 to, uh, to get perspective. Let's look at Romans 8, 1 through 4. Is this making any sense to you guys? Okay, good. Let's read Romans 8, 1 through 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I, I should say this. So as I was dialoguing with my friend who wrote the email, we're going back and forth. We were just talking a little bit. And at one point I said, hey, you know what you might do just today? You might just, whenever that starts hitting you, I'm, you know, I'm worthless. I'm not, you know, I can't make the cut. God's disciplined. Just take those two words, no condemnation. And every time that condemnation comes into your mind, you just say, no condemnation. No condemnation. You fight back with the word of God. That's the accuser of the brethren. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, he answered him with scripture. You answer him with scripture. We learn from Jesus. You just do what Jesus did. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is that great news or what? That's unbelievable. And it gets better, if that's possible. But it gets better. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. You're free. You're, you're, still, you're still in a mop-up operation. But Christ has set you free. Three, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus, who knew no sin, took your sin, he took my sin upon him. Um, and he offered himself and his sinless life took all that sin and he paid for it. And the wrath of God, which was due to come upon us, was put on Jesus. And Jesus paid it all and he paid it in full. That's amazing. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? That's the gospel. This is the, pro, the technical term. I went to seminary, I spent a lot of money. Let me use a technical term just to justify the cost. I learned this word propitiation. Here's a synonym, satisfaction. Jesus satisfied the Father's wrath by his sacrifice. <laughs> Four. Uh, let, let, me, let me pick up the end of three. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Yeah, but Steve, I give in now. I, I know. But see, but the spirit of God's within you. You see. And you've been set free. And you're on a path, and there is a process that's going on. And God's at work. Okay? 
uh, 6. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. The mindset on the spirit, the spirit and the word always work together. We've said this before in here. Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, be controlled with the Spirit. Colossians 3.16, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. And I said this last week, you take two Bibles, Ephesians 5.18, Colossians 3.16, be filled with the Spirit, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. What are the results? They're exactly the same. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God in my life to bring about change. And let me tell you something, he's bringing about change. You may not be real excited about your batting average. Yes, Steve, I actually, I think I went from, you know, I think I went from 265 down to about 217 last year. Okay. There you go. Oh, can I say something to you? There is therefore now no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. He understands you. He understands what's going on in your life. I had a guy one night show up in this study who had driven 800 miles. And uh, his, he, said, my, he, said, he said, my life has absolutely fallen apart. You know what the first thing I said to him was? I said, have you had your testosterone checked? And he, he said, what? <laughs> I said, have you had it checked? He said, no, you're the but he said, you're the second guy to say that to me. I said, you ought to go get it checked. Because a lot of what you're telling me and the age that you are could be absolutely physical. Absolutely. And the reason I know is because it happened to me. And my wife, who had been doing her research on a book for men, one day we're talking and we're in the pool and I'm, you know, and she was watching me. She knew it. And I said, you know, Mary, I got to tell you something. I, I feel this and this and this and this and this. She goes, yeah, you need to go get your testosterone checked. I said, excuse me? <laughs> and I did, and I was 10 points above the absolute bare minimum. I was almost a woman. And I got it checked, and about 90% of what I was dealing with turned around because it was physical primarily. Now, is it always that way? No, but sometimes it is. Sometimes it's a spiritual issue. What I'm saying is, God gets you and God understands you. Let's flip back to Romans 5, okay? Because what we're talking about is he loves me by what he has accomplished. Jesus went to the cross as an offering, died in my place. And because, that he, because Jesus fulfilled the law in every point, all of us are great lawbreakers, but he fulfilled the law on our behalf. Therefore, we're justified. Now go to Romans 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, that's a legal forensic term, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, this is what he has accomplished. Now, he's going to get to the love of God in a minute. 
through whom also, through Christ, we've obtained our introduction by faith into this grace. This is a grace thing. This is a mercy thing. This is a forgiveness thing. It's not a letter of the law thing. It's not legalism. And it's not just grace where you go and live any way you want to. That's, that's not it. That's licentiousness. But it's the grace and mercy of a forgiving and benevolent God through which we also obtained our instruction, our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. We exult in hope of the glory of God. Not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope. Oh, you see, because even the hard things we go through, God is at work in my life. Even the hard things. He's building spiritual muscle. He's making me stronger. He's getting me ready for tasks that I could not handle now. No pain, no gain. Go to five. And hope does not disappoint. Watch this. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So I've been rereading Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Um, there you go. This came out in 73. I got it in 73. I, I, I don't say this to puff me up. Uh, I love this book. And I've worn out several copies over the years. I've got three, four on my shelf that I've worn out and are marked. And literally, they fall apart. Because you see, I got to know this stuff to live, to survive. He's got a chapter in here called The Love of God. Here's what he says. To know God's love is indeed heaven on earth. And it is. In Romans 5, 5, when Paul says the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which was given unto us, he means not our love for God, as Augustine thought, but knowledge of God's love for us. See, he wants us to know the love of God for us, what God has done for us, how much he loves us. Three points in Paul's words deserve comment. First, Notice the verb shed abroad. It literally means poured or tipped out. It suggests a free flow in a large quantity. In fact, an inundation. Think of the Houston floods and the water still on the interstates and the streets. Absolutely inundated. The love of God has been poured out in our hearts. We're inundated with it. And it will not recede. Hence the rendering in the New English Bible, God's love has flooded our inmost heart. Paul is not talking about faint and fitful impressions, but of deep and overwhelming ones. When you start getting this love of God, it overwhelms you. Absolutely overwhelms you, and it gives you a safety and a security and a sense of well-being and a peace that passes all understanding. And it staggers the imagination. That's why John Newton, Newton wrote Amazing Grace. It's just, a, it's just amazing. It's just amazing. He didn't call that song grace. He called it Amazing Grace. 
how sweet the sound. There's no torment. There's no torture. There's no not good enough. The thought is that knowledge of the love of God, having, having flooded our hearts, fills them now, just as a valley once flooded remains full of water. Paul assumes that all his readers like himself will be living in the enjoyment of a strong and abiding sense of God's love for them. He said, then notice that the instilling of this knowledge is, is, is described as part of the regular ministry of the Holy Spirit to those who receive him. To all that is who are born again, all who are true believers. Flip over to Ephesians 3 real quick. Ephesians 3. See, Paul prayed that people would get this. Paul prayed that people would get anchored in the love of God. Okay. Ephesians 3.14. Paul says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father and then go down to 17. He's praying. So that Christ, he's praying. I pray that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love. Get, the, get those terms. Rooted, grounded in what? Not an accusation in love. Watch this. May be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And because of the love of God, you got the next verse. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond anything that we could ever ask or think. According to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. The love of God is stunning. It's staggering. In your life, he'll do more for you than you could ever ask or imagine. He'll do it. He'll stun you with his goodness. You just keep walking with him. This is something I want to be anchored in. You see? I need to hear this. But it's not the only anchor. There is more in Romans 8. Um, here's the second anchor. He loves me by helping me to assassinate sin. He loves me by helping me to assassinate sin. So if you look at Romans 8, and you go down to verse 12, so then, brethren, we are, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, not to the sin nature, to live according to the flesh. But if you are living according to the flesh, to the sin nature, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. See, he's given us the Holy Spirit to help us kill sin. Uh, John Owen said, either we will be killing sin or sin will be killing us. Guys do not get free of sin. Uh, guys do not get free of pornography until they get to such a point of revulsion with it in their life 
that they want to kill it. See, a lot of guys, Christian guys who struggle with pornography, the problem is they don't want to kill it. They just kind of want to incapacitate it. They don't want to kill it. They want to put it on life support. Until you get to that point of wanting to kill it, it's not going to get killed. The Spirit of God, though, will help you kill it. There are guys in this room who've been set free from the addiction of pornography. Wherever I go in the country, I meet guys that have ministries to pornography addicts, to sexual addicts. Now, you know what's fascinating about these guys? Every one of them was addicted. And then Christ set them free by the power of the Holy Spirit. Did it happen overnight? Did it get in the microwave? No. There was a process. They probably had to confess their sin to someone they didn't want anyone to know about, but they had to come clean. And then, as James said, confess your sin one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. There is a, because, you see, we need others in the body. We need to confess to those who can help us, and we pray for one another, and we walk through life. The enemy always, what, his strategy is always to take a man and isolate him from other men. And then a guy is easy to take down. It's, it's what, they, what predators do in herds. They'll isolate an animal, and they can take it down. Uh, you want to you, you be walking with Christian men. He who walks with wise men will be wise. Jesus didn't send them out one by one. He sent them out two by two. So I've read a number in recent years of stories of those who were evangelical Christians who now have succumbed to just so, I'm so tired of dealing with same-sex attraction. A Christian musician that had a lot of really good songs, did some great videos. And 2004, 2005, he'd been married 30 years. Came out and said, Listen, I've always dealt with same-sex attraction. And I read this whole thing that he wrote. And what I got from this guy is, I've always felt this way, 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 I've always felt this way. I've always dealt with this, I've always dealt with this, I've always dealt with this, I've always dealt with this. And then he came out and said, I'm just tired of dealing with it. So, I'm going to go ahead, and I know God loves me and God approves. And God doesn't approve. God does not approve. The only sexual relationship that God approves and endorses is between a husband and wife in the covenant of marriage, period. That's it. Anything outside of that is sexual sin. Anything. That's the word of God. Read 1 Thessalonians 4. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Is that easy? No. Is it difficult? Yeah. But it's what God says. Here's my point. What, what's, what, what's happening in this culture is that we're seeing people who are, they're just tired of the conflict. They're worn out by the conflict. And they're just, I'm just not going to fight it anymore. You have to fight it. 
In 1 Timothy 1.18, Paul told Timothy, fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have departed from and shipwrecked their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and, I'm blanking, some other guy, whom I have delivered over to Satan that they may taught not to blaspheme. Hymenaeus and Alexander. Uh, Here's the thing. Some guys deal with same-sex attraction, and a lot of that has to do with your upbringing and how you were raised and parents and all that kind of stuff for different reasons. God knows, okay? Does everybody deal with same-sex attraction? No. But some guys, let me tell you something, some guys really struggle with opposite-sex attraction. So what do you do? I'm just tired of dealing with opposite-sex attraction. I'm just so sick and tired. I'm just going to give in. No, you keep fighting. You just keep fighting. You just keep fighting. Jesus told me to keep fighting. You stay in the word. You just, you're in battle. And we get battle weary and we get battle fatigued, but don't become weary in well-doing. And this is where you can't be in it by yourself. You've got to be walking with others. Is this making any sense? You keep fighting sin because the Spirit of God is there to help you. See, he's there to help you. He's there to help you. Here's number three. He loves me, he loves me by my adoption. By my adoption. Um, Romans 8, verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God. By the way, I skipped over nine earlier. Would you look at verse 9 real quick? However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells within you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If you're a believer in Christ, the Spirit of God is in you. Okay, now watch this. Go to 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God and of children, heirs also of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We're in the family, but every one of us has been adopted. One more quote from Packer. He writes these words. He says, You can sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Earlier he says, what is a Christian? That question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God for his father. That's an amazing thing. To have God as your father. 
Yeah. Okay. So stay with me here. We've been justified, right? Okay, that was Romans 5. We've been adopted. Listen to what Packer says. Justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. We all stand by nature under God's judgment. His law condemns us, guilt gnaws at us, making us restless, miserable. And in our lucid moments afraid, we have no peace in ourselves because we have no peace with our maker. So we need the forgiveness of sins and assurance of a restored relationship with God more than we need anything else in the world. And this, the gospel offers us before it offers us anything else. That's justification. But this is not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. Really? Adoption is higher. Watch this reasoning. Adoption is higher because of the... Hey, you could be home watching Fox News right now. Aren't you glad you aren't? This is true. Or any other news. This is true. You can live off this stuff. That's not to say justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. Adoption is higher. Why? Because of, the high, because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. The two ideas are distinct, and adoption is the more exalted. Justification is a forensic idea conceived in terms of law, viewing God as judge. But contrast this now with adoption. Adoption is a family idea concern, conceived in terms of love and viewing God as a father in adoption. God takes us into his family and fellowship and establishes us as his children and Heirs, closeness, affection, and generosity at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. The love of God. I love that. By the way, in this book on atheists and all this, he, he talks about uh, substitute fathers. There's a guy named Walker Percy who died in 1990, Christian novelist. His father committed suicide early on. And then when he was about, he had an uncle who took in, when the father committed suicide, he had an uncle who was a bachelor who took in his mother and himself and his two brothers. And, and then his mother was so terribly depressed and sad, apparently she committed suicide by driving off a bridge. So you have these three teenage boys, just tragic and, um, yeah, but this is in a section called Substitute Fathers. Uh, their uncle who adopted them was Uncle Will. Just read a section. After the devastating second death of the mother, Walker and his brothers looked to Uncle Will for their total support, which he gave without reserve. Will was a caring and careful guardian. He read to the boys, organized vacation trips, and in due course, after the boys had agreed to the proposal, formally adopted all three boys. When Walker was 26, Uncle Will died of cardiovascular disease. When Walker called one of his brothers to tell him the bad news, his brother said, watch this, I feel adrift. The anchor is gone. I never saw Uncle Will do a selfish thing. I can't say that about anybody else I've ever known. The first novel that Walker ever did, he dedicated to Uncle Will, a substitute father. Isn't that interesting? I feel the drift. 
Our anchor is gone. See, that's what a father's supposed to be. Two more, and I'll do this quickly. The fourth anchor is he loves me by his active assistance. Okay? Active assistance. So, this is Romans 8, 26. All right? Now, I'm going to tell you something. God is serious about his assistance. He is active. He is available. He is not distant. He is connected. So, watch this. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You know what's amazing about this? As we're walking through life, we don't know what the heck we're doing. Do you know the Holy Spirit prays for you? A a lot of of charismatic people have taken this verse and they misconstrue it. They say, oh, this is the private tongues. This is the Spirit praying through you. That's not it at all. It says, and in the same way the Spirit helps our weakness, we don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He's praying for us, and he prays according to the will of God. Uh, He who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. When you pray and you're not even sure what to pray and all that, he's praying, the Spirit of God is praying for you. When you're struggling, he's praying for you. That's called active assistance. Uh, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Even the bad things, even the hard things, even the evil things, God is at work. Watch this. For those whom he foreknew, the the idea here is foreloved. You know, you'll see in the Old Testament, and Abraham knew Sarah. That's talking about a type of love, an intimate love between a husband and wife. For those whom he foreknew, it's not that God looked ahead to see who would choose him. The fact of the matter is, if it was up to us, none of us would choose him. That's not what this is. Those whom he foreloved, we love him because he first loved us. All right. And let those, uh, sorry, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that they would be the firstborn among so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. You say, did you just say the word predestination? Yes, I did. I don't like that word. You should love this word. You should thank God for this word. What this means, you know all it means? It means, I have asked this before in conferences. How how many of you uh, are comfortable with predestination? A few, a few hands. Uh, Let me ask you another question. How many of you believe God has a plan for your life? Every hand in the room goes, all right. That's predestination. God's got a plan that's better than yours. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And aren't you glad? And because of this, because he has, and does it mean you don't have a choice? Does it mean you don't have responsible? No, of course it does. You're responsible for your decisions and all that. But let me tell you something. God's steering you. He's steering you. And he's got a path and, and his will for you, you make your choices and your decisions. God's plan and God's will is so good, is so great, it involves certainty without compulsion. He doesn't make you want to do it. It's that he works through your desires and you want to do it. Did someone make you propose to your wife? Oh, God, no, please, please, not her. Oh, God, please, no, no, Jesus, help me. Help me, Jesus. 
Why did you propose to her? Because you wanted to. Right? It's certainty without compulsion. Hold on. 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, hey, you can't go to heaven if you're not predestined. He called, and those whom he called, he justified, there it is. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. You know what? That's how you get to heaven. Glorification is what happens in heaven. Listen, he is actively assisting you all the way in. You're already as good as in, in Christ. 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? 32 is amazing. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? This is a generous God. You say, yeah, but Steve, I've been praying for something and I don't have it right now. But a lot of my Christian friends have this, but I don't have it. Well, you know why you don't have it? Because it's not a good thing for you right now. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. It might be good for you in five years, but it's not good for you right now. He will not withhold a good thing from you, but he will not give it to you prematurely. Keep following. This is his active assistance. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God's the one who justifies. Who is the one who contemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So now you got the Holy Spirit interceding, and now you got Jesus interceding. That's unbelievable. And now the last one is, uh, are you starting to get the sense that God loves you? Here's the last one. He loves me because of his insurance of assurance. Verses 35 to 39 uh, it's assurance, but it's the insurance of assurance. You got a policy. It's 835 to 39. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Go to 37. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Watch this. I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present. Oh, yeah, Steve, I'm really struggling with sin and I got a big conflict right now. Are you telling me that's something present? Yeah, yeah, it's present. It can't separate you from the love of Christ. <laughs> nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8. It's the gospel. It's the greatest news in all the world. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Let's pray. Father, we are thankful. We are overwhelmed. We are grateful. We're amazed. We're amazed by your goodness and generosity and kindness that Jesus died in our place. That you not only save us from our sin, but you put us on a path that leads us to eternal life and no one can thwart it. Yeah, we'll encounter hardship and difficulties and deep disappointments and things that break our hearts and all of that, but you're in all of it. You're in all of it, and you use it to grow us and mature us and develop us. 
And yes, Lord, there are times when you do discipline us because we get hard-hearted and we want to do it our way and we get stubborn and just like a good father, you will come along and you will take us to the woodshed. But as soon as we have a change of heart and repent and submit, the discipline ceases. Give us teachable hearts. Keep us in the scriptures. Don't let us listen to the lies. Let us listen to the truth. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. In his great name we pray with thankfulness. Amen.